the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you, um, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass, um, the life that we carry within us, all the many ways in which you offer yourself and ask us to do the same with our own lives. Help all of us get past anything that's selfish within us, that's so often um, so much a part of what we do. Strengthen us in our efforts to deny ourselves, put ourselves away so that we can make of our lives a free offering to a cross. Um, Give us the courage to do this, the humility. Um, In your words to us this morning, um, Peter, you asked us to bring love to what we do, that it covers sins to be hospitable, um, help us to do that. Um, I ask a special blessing for those that um, um, the parishioners in our groups have asked for prayers. Carrie and Amy especially, um, help them find help, um, help them find a meaning in their lives. Let people step forward who can show you. Um, help them to recover themselves, um, to know the gladness of being free of the difficulties that they carry. Let that be so for all of us. Um, for Daniel, for um, Debbie's son, Matthew, and his wife, Lynn, help them in their marriage. Help all of us in our marriages. Um, help us all to overcome those things that tend to push us away so that we can each in our marriages become one. Let that be real, not just an idea. Um, um, thank you for um, the help you've given Dan in his recovery. I ask a special blessing on Ron and Priscilla. and offer thanks for the help that um, they're finding in friends. Help them find a place. Um, Let people step forward with possibilities for them so that they can settle again, find a home. Close to us, they want to be here, you know that. Um, Help be offered to them. I ask a blessing on us in this group Help us to um, live all that we're learning from Dante. Bring it to our lives and to each other. We offer all of this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, dry salvages. Salvages. Does anybody need a copy? Uh huh. Hi, Tom and Linda. Hi. How are you? Did you, you saw we've got a assortment of cookies here. Please pass that back. Here, have some. Here, pass these and, and then.
to see you guys all again. It's always good to see you guys. Truly, truly. You don't know how much you give me life just seeing you guys. Um, Dras of Ashes is the third of the four quartets, and as you, I think I've said before, each one of the quartets has an actual historical setting um, with a history behind it, and each quartet has a different focus. Um, um, one of the concerns that Eliot has in the four quartets is um, what the medieval world would have called the four basic elements that make up our lives, <coughs> fire, air, earth, and water. Yeah, fire, air, earth, and water. Those are basic elements. They're actually the four elements that made up the medieval psychology. It was a combination of those four elements that produced our tempers. You know, somebody could be fiery or cold or hot or dry or a mixture of those. Pretty interesting psychology. Um, in lots of ways, I think it's healthier than what we've got today. But um, in Dry Savages, um, Eliot speaks about the river, water, and its presence everywhere. And if you remember the other quartets, whatever element he's dealing with, we always find it everywhere in nature. It can be in the stars or the the wind, in the blood, and because he's at pains to show this affinity between things that we've lost a sense of. I mean, we live in a modern world in which atoms just float sort of purposely in space. Eliot's taking pains to show that whatever his subject, whether he's describing a flower, um, the movement of the stars, the blood, that there are forces that, that show the unity that we share with everything in creation. And so it is here. He, he begins talking about the river, water, and um, shows the way in which the modern world has tried to build this artificial thing over it, the, the, the mechanistic view that we get from science that attempts to control everything to make nature fit us. And I, those of you who are here when we did the Odyssey, you remember the danger of that. I hope. Did I mention that last time? I can't remember. I can't remember. I get confused between Monday and Fridays and I'm afraid of repeating myself all the time. Remember when Odysseus gets um, transported home by the Phaeacians? The Phaeacians described their ships as being so, they were so proud of their, their art, their techne. It was the first time I introduced that notion. Their art, their techne, te technology means using rationalized means of mastering nature, making something. They prided themselves on their ships and described their ships as moving across the sea without fear as, as if they were able to follow the thoughts of men. And I remember suggesting to you that that's, that's an anticipation of the computer. The virtual world that we live in today, technology can trend. We're in, we're in China, three seconds after we press a button. And the dangers of that, because in some sense it gives us this feeling that we have mastered the body and nature. Well, what happens when the Phaeacians drop him off? Their ship is turned into a mountain. Nature, Poseidon, is punishing them for their hubris. 
nature reasserts itself because the, the, the danger of thinking that you've mastered nature in the Homeric world is that you've mastered the gods. So too in the Christian world. God made nature. He is somehow at work there. When man begins to presume that he's got control of nature, it's as if he's it's an act of hubris. It's as if he thinks he's got control over God. So it's one of the grave dangers in our technological world today. Omar, welcome. Good to see you again. There's coffee and all sorts of cookies. Um, and there's a sign-up sheet that's been... Did everybody sign up? We're sending around a sign-up sheet to get some sense from you guys of whether you want to stop or continue to go ahead. And my preference, as I just said a few minutes ago, would be to take a break this summer and then continue if you would like to continue in the fall. So you can exp let, let us know what you'd like to do on that sheet. Oh, okay. Okay, dry salvations. <clears throat> I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong, is a strong brown god. Sullen, untamed, and intractable, patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy as a conveyor of commerce. Then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget, unhonored, unpropitiated by worshippers of the machine, but waiting, watching, and waiting. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom in the rank Alanthus of the April dooryard in the smell of grapes on the autumn table and the evening circle in the winter gaslight. Men attempt to use machines to master nature. It's a beautiful line, but, but the, the river, the water, the God is everywhere, always there, in the bedroom, in the nursery, in the, in the, um, the flowers, in the grapes on the autumn table, the evening circle in the winter, it's, it's everywhere. The river is within us, the sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also. The granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. The starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale's backbone. The pools where it offers to our curiosity, the more delicate algae, algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses, the torn saying, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, the gear of foreign dead men. The sea has many voices, many gods and many voices. Let me go back for a minute. Sorry, I should have said this before. Once again, in the Odyssey, for those of you who are here, remember that Odysseus, before he goes home, has to get a hold of the old man of the sea because the old man of the sea will prophesy. He will help him. And if you remember, um, the, the sea is an image of a grace and a terror. It's not man's home. We're not meant to be at sea. Our home is on the land. But in the Odyssey, we learned that we, we can't get home without learning to deal with the sea. And it's at the sea 
that Odysseus encounters all of the archetypes, the shifting things. And so the sea is an image of the, um, that from which all things come. It's undifferentiated matter. It's like primal matter. All things come from it and all things return to it because all things dissolve. They return back into their elements. So the sea is in all of literature, in Shakespeare's The Tempest, in Moby Dick, the sea is that which we have to confront to find our way. In the, in the, in the, in the Paradiso, in the outset of the Paradiso, Dante likens his, his journey up the Paradiso to a sailor in a ship and he says, for most of you, I would warn you, go back. Because unless you're ready to enter dangerous waters, you should turn around. Because what we're about to face is going to be too dangerous. So the sea is always baptism. It's where we die and sometimes may not come back to life, depending on the kind of death. So Eliot's got all of that here. I mean, those, are, those images are traditional images in literature. The, the river is within us. The sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also. He goes on and describes all these things. The sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. The salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees. The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard. The whine in the rigging, the menace and caressive wave that breaks on water, the distant rote in the granite teeth, and the wailing warning from the approaching headlands are all sea voices and the heaving groaner rounded homeward, and the seagull. And under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake, calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn when the past is all deception, the future futureless, for the morning watch when time stops and time is never ending, and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. Extraordinary lines. You can imagine women waiting for their husbands to come home. In, in the in the passages to come, he's going to be describing the bailing, the work, the toil, the constant ever to get somewhere. And, and even though the image of that is a ship, I think he intends it to mean everything. We go to a corporate world and we're bailing, working, drowning often in work. You know, he, he, those are metaphors he's got in his mind. But think about the time that he's describing right now. Women waiting up all night in prayer older than the time of chronometers. He's talking about a different kind of time. It's not mechanical scientific time. Older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious worried women lying awake, calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn when the past is all deception, the future futureless before the morning watch when time stops and time is never ending and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. If it's not before and after, what time is he talking about? 
And remember, I've said before in Dante and the Purgatorio, time is love. We tend to mechanize time. We make it, we, we define it in terms of intervals, its ability to mark off intervals. The time that he's talking about here is not that kind of time. Where is the end of it? The soundless wailing, the silent withering of autumn flowers dropping their petals and remaining motionless. Where is there an end to the drifting wreckage, the prayer of the bone on the beach, the unprayable prayer at the calamitous annunciation? There is no end but addition, the trailing consequence of further days and hours while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable, and therefore the fittest for renunciation, the things we most want to hold on to, are the things most fit for being renounced. There's the final addition, the failing pride or resentment at failing powers, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. Where is the end of them? The fishermen sailing into the wind's tail or the fog cowers? We cannot think of a time that is oceanless or of an ocean not littered with wastage or of a future that is not liable like the past to have no destination. We have to think of them as forever bailing, sailing, setting, and hauling, while the northeast lowers over shallow banks unchanging and erosionless, or drawing their money, drying sails at dockage, not as making a trip that would be unpayable for a haul that will not bear examination. There is no end of it, the voiceless wailing, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage, the bones prayer to death it's gone, only the hardly, barely prayable prayer of the one annunciation. It seems as one becomes older that the past has another pattern and ceases to be a mere sequence or even development the latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, which becomes, in the popular mind, a means of disowning the past. The moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security, or affection, or even a very good dinner, but the sudden illumination, we had the experience but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. I have said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations, not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable. The backward look behind the assurance of recorded history, the backward half-look over the shoulder towards the primitive terror, now we come to discover that the moment of agony, whether or not due to misunderstanding, having hoped for the wrong things or dreaded the wrong things, is not in question, are likewise permanent with such permanence as time has. We appreciate this better in the agony of others 
nearly experienced involving ourselves than in our own. For our own past is covered by the currents of action, but the torment of others remains an experience unqualified, unworn by subsequent attrition. People change and smile, but the agony abides. Time the destroyer is time the preserver, like the river with its cargo of dead negroes, cows, and chicken coops, the bitter apple and the bite in the apple, and the ragged rock in the restless waters, waves wash over it, fogs conceal it. On a halcyon day it is merely a monument, in navigable weather it is always a sea mark to lay a course by, but in the somber season or the sudden fury is what it always was. Okay, we'll finish. We'll finish this next time. Okay. It feels like a journey to depression. <laughs> it does. It is. <laughs> no, it's very deep. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. rest, or I mean, it's it's a it's a very strong look at reality. I mean, he is seeing something we don't want to see. Yeah, there's a dark night of the soul behind a lot of this. Yeah, the interesting, I mean, just to offset that, I think you're right, Tom, and I'm, it makes me wonder if I'm... Elliot reads it. If, when you read lyric poetry, you're supposed to read it not like drama. I mean, you, if you listen to Elliot's readings, they're pretty dry. Matter of fact, you don't put much emotion into it. I'm not sure that I'm doing it justice, but... But remember, there, there are all those things, um, the unprayable prayer at the calamitous, and then he knows that very often... God, I mean, Father says this all the time. You know, be careful of what you pray for. If what you pray, you pray in a spirit of love, God will answer it. But some of the things we pray for are the wrong things. And Elliot's aware of that. But remember all of these, the unprayable prayer, the calamitous enunciation of what was believed at the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. In the, in the I can't remember if it was East Coker or Burt Norton, but there are those things when he, where he talks about do not hope because what you hope for is the wrong thing. You know, um, the, the, the we, he, it's really clear that for him, and I think for Dante, we have a lot of work to do with ourselves to make ourselves better so that when we do pray, when we do hope, we're hoping for the right thing and not the wrong things. And I think it's particularly important because we live in a, we live in a, in a post-Christian world where people use those words all the time. I hope I, I hope I get a car. Hope is a supernatural virtue. Well, truly, we use those all the time. No, I mean, what, we, what we've done in our world is taken supernatural things and brought them down to the world to serve ourselves. So very, and Elliot's aware of this. Very, a Christian world has lost sight of its supernatural, I mean, all that we're you know, doing in Dante. But to say, I hope for, or, you know, I love that car, or I love that house. Of course we do. I mean, having a house and a car are good things, but there's a supernatural aspect to those that the secularized world has taken away. So when Eliot talks about these things, I think he, it's, it's like purifying. His and Pound's phrase, Ezra Pound's, was purifying the language of the tribe that in our time we had to clean our language up because so often we use language for the wrong things. And that's why poetry is, I mean, it's one of the 
Can you tell me, I just, you probably mentioned this, when was Elliot writing this? And, and all these segments like, you know, that you're reading here, are they part of one whole or are they separate poems? Um, Elliot, I can't remember. Elliot published Proofrock in the first collection of poems, I think around 1920, okay. shortly after The Wasteland, and then a little bit after that, the um, Ash Wednesday. We've gone through this. Ash Wednesday was that poem that marked his conversion. He, he became one of the great poets of the 20th century about that time. Um, and England loved him. They commissioned him to, to, to do some writing, so he wrote some plays. Um, uh, the Cocktail Party and what's the one on? Murder in the Cathedral, which is about the... Ooh, yes. um, the he wrote that. Oh. Yeah, the, the killing of... Um, Thomas Beckett? Yes, yeah. Wonderful play. So, and, so, and then toward... And during that time, actually, one of the sections that he was writing for those plays ended up being part of the section on, on uh, Burt Norton. So, but he couldn't use it in the play, but something was brewing in him, something was happening, and then in, towards the end of his life, he wrote the four quartets. These are really the, <coughs> the final fruit of... Is this part of four quartets? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it is. There's four quartets. Burton Norton, East Coker, Dry Sauvages, and Little Gidding. We read Little Gidding at our gathering. Oh, yes, yes. The, it was the final one. We read it all through, so... Hmm. Thank you. Okay, let's... Uh, just very quickly. Um... We talked a little bit about the importance of Beatrice and, and why she's important and how she's different from Virgil, remember. She's a Christ-bearer. She comes from God, so she brings the light of the Imperium, the light of God and, and of Christ, everything she does. She brings to her, her teaching of Dante supernatural illuminations that are beyond Virgil. So even though they're still in the, the natural order, even though they're going up the heavens, you all, you all remember if I gave you a quiz, you'd, you'd know the order of the planets, right? <laughs> Moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, and, they, and it goes up. Um, so even though they're in the natural order, going from planet to planet, she's revealing truths that have a supernatural aspect to them, and I'm going to get to that in a minute because it's just it's so important for understanding what's going on. We saw that in the that the the heavens are divided into into three segments. You've got that those notes, right? Pull these out because they're really they really are good. I put together some really good notes. Um, if you if you look at this, you'll see. Um, that the first third consists of the Moon, Mercury, and Venus, and they're set off because they are they are in the shadow of the Earth. That's as far as the shadow of the Earth will cast. It goes up to Venus, um, and I went through that. Remember that this is this is the the Earth is here, and everything from the Moon down was called the sublunary world. It was the world of mutability, where where things changed and die. So in this world, the sublunary world, from the moon below to the earth, um, was a world of constant change, subject to death and decay. <coughs> so
So when Dante passes from the earth into the moon and goes into the heaven, he is entering the sphere of eternal things, immutable things, things that don't change. So there's a supernatural aspect to everything that goes on. I, I don't want that just to be a word in your heads. I, I'll come back to that in a minute. It's so crucial to not just let that be an abstraction. We saw also that in the, in the first third, these first um, planets from, from the sun down, that souls meet him who are deficient in the natural virtues. So Picarda meets him at the moon. Remember, she, she and Constant violated their vows. In Mercury, he meets um, Justinian. Is that right? It was Justinian, yeah. Justinian had a, um, was in error in his belief in Christ because he believed that Christ had one nature. So there was a deficiency in his thinking. Um, and we're giving the example of Romeo there too. In the heaven of Venus, we meet Charles Martel, who talks about um, the problems that people get into when they try to be something they're not. And I'll look at that in a minute. He, he's especially critical of parents and children particularly parents, because they encourage children to do things that are not in accord with their own nature, the gifts. Um, so those are the subjects of those, that first leg of Dante's um, journey. I want to come back to this in a minute, because what's going on there is really important. We saw that the body is transhumanized, um, that he, he, enters, um, he enters the heavens, faster than the, the light of speed, and he also enters the moon. So immediately we're made aware that time and space categories, as, as we typically understand them, don't apply. And, and I want to come back to the, I want to just take a, a, a minute, um, because it's going to, I hope it'll open up what Dante's doing, because what he does in the Paradiso is, he's going to be doing things with language that no other poet has ever done. And part of what he's doing is, is because we've entered a world in which our time-space categories don't operate anymore. And let me just give an example. Last night, Suzanne and I went to adoration. I hope all of you are thinking about doing it. It really is a good time. We didn't used to do it, but we've been doing it more the last few years, and it's really good. It's a quiet time of praying more immediately to Christ present. Scott was there. Um, it was good to see him there. Um, and I meditated on this. I thought about, I'm not sure that I should have, but I was meditating on this. One of the things that strikes me about our faith is, is this, that it so strikes against apparent rational categories. We believe that when we take the Eucharist, um, we participate in an experience that's much like the multiplication of the fishes, right? We've got this bread, it's multiplied infinitely, and, it, and um, we believe that Christ is present, not just to, at, to us, but all over the world. And how can that be? How can he be here and in China and in Europe and Africa, right? We believe that. The, the precedents for that, biblically, are the manna in the desert that the Jews had. It's one of them. Um, the multiplication of the fishes is 
is a precedent for that. There are the examples of the woman. Was it Elijah who came to her, and the woman had only this little bit of um, flour left, not enough to survive on, and she knew that if she used it, the likelihood is she would die, they'd starve to death. But because she was charitable and sacrificed herself, um, um, it, it wasn't depleted, it, it, it lasted, it, it replenished itself. And there's the other example in, the, in a similar instance, I can't remember, where a woman, um, the, the description is, it, it never ran out. And it was a bread thing again, it would, involving a woman, I can't remember, I've got notes on it somewhere. But there are all these instances you know, of, of, of this infinite quality to what God does. It won't run out. Um, one, of the, one of the ways I think about this, and I've got to find some way of doing better describing it, I just find it hard. If we ever think of ourselves as being in the presence of God and, and having the experience of the beatific vision, of looking on God, looking, seeing his face, to actually behold him, um, <clears throat> imagine somebody who's doing it at the same time. When we're in time and space, if I'm looking at Scott and somebody also wants to talk with Scott, that person, let's say, if the room's crowded, will be behind him. Scott won't be looking at him if we're, right now, we're looking at each other. With God, it can't be like that. There is no behind. If, if God is fully present to me, he's going to be just as fully present to somebody behind. If, do you see, there is no behind. God is infinite. So we, can, we cannot use time-space categories or language the way we do when we're talking about infinity or being. Dante's going to have this line later in, in the Imperium where, where neither time, neither time nor distance added or took away. Neither time nor distance added or took away. Because there is no time or distance in eternity. Somebody in the presence of God could be this close and a thousand miles away and be as immediately present to God because there is no time or distance the way we know it. Now, we tend to materialize our concepts. We always want to put bounds on them, so we're constantly putting boundaries on God. But everything that, everything that Dante's doing is shattering that. Okay? So, is that all clear, what I'm talking about? That, that somehow, when we, when, we, when we do adoration and we're looking at the host, we also know that somebody is looking at a host 50 cities over on the other side of the world, and he is as present to them. If somebody's praying to Mary and Mary's hearing that person, how is it possible to, for her to hear 30 million people praying to her all over the world? She is somehow present to all of us, just as Christ is. So whenever we, whenever we contemplate the mysteries that are, are at the center of our faith, the Eucharist, prayer, part of us knows that we're entering a world that's mysterious, that we enter by faith. We try to use reason as much as we can to, because we know that there's this consonance, this compatibility between these two worlds, our world and, but we know that that's a struggle. Like at the beginning of the Bible in itself, in the beginning, yeah, I'm still fighting that. Yeah, 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 right. In the beginning. 
Right. So just know that as we're moving up the Paradiso, when you find Dante doing strange things, it's because he's trying to use language and reason to help us enter that mystery. And I think he does an amazing job. I mean, he makes it so understandable. So one of the first experiences of it is he, he moves faster than light. He's transhumanized. And his body enters the moon, one body entering another. So we know we're already in another. Something <coughs> mysterious has happened that doesn't fit with our categories. Okay. Um, and I and I wanted to um, I wanted to put this in this term in these terms <coughs> um, to try to make sense of this. Did I do this last week? Yeah. I did. Okay, you, you I've said it before then, yeah? Mm -hmm. That it was um, 400 years after the Trojan War that Homer wrote. It was 800 years after Homer wrote before Virgil, before another poet could do an epic. It was 1,300 years for Dante. So now lots of other epics were written, lots of them, but none of them with a, with a major stature of these epics. These are extraordinary epics. The point of doing this was to suggest how hard it is to write an epic because epics by their nature are cosmic, encyclopedic. They contain a whole world view. That's the nature of the epic. The modern novel doesn't come close to that. Um, Dante's on the verge of the modern world. Science is, science is being reintroduced into the world after a platonic Middle Ages where science has really had no place. Plato looked down on the body on material causes. The Middle Ages were platonic. So there's no way sciences could have flourished in the Middle Ages. It's only after Aristotle's recovered, 10th century, 10th, 11th century, that the sciences um, <coughs> begin to flourish again. What Dante is doing in his epic vision in the Paradiso, remember we're beyond Virgil now, we've entered the heavens, He's offering a metaphysical account of all the things that go on in the world. So he's bringing an understanding that um, from Beatrice, because she comes from God and she can see the reason behind things in ways that human reason cannot. So all of her explanations have a supernatural element a metaphysical element to them that was beyond anything Virgil could have thought. So, so just as as a quick example, um, when when they arrive in the moon, Dante asks this question about moon spots. Now that may just seem stupid. Who wants to know anything about why would Dante introduce moon spots into an epic? Um, because he's trying to show the the failures of empirical sciences to answer a question about moon spots. The answer that, that he offers are the answers that most people would have offered at his time. They try to explain moon spots in terms of their rarity or density. Those are physical properties. And what Dante's showing us is that material things cannot explain themselves. They, they give a, a, a limited explanation but to get to the ultimate explanation, you have to go to metaphysics. You have to go to something beyond. Matter cannot explain itself. And we live in a world in which scientists assume matter can. We live in a world defined by empirical sciences. 
So everything that everything that happens in these first four levels, the moon spots, Picarda breaking her vows. Remember, she and Constance broke her vows. She's, and the and the argument is, once you give your vows to God, you can't take them back. They're not yours any longer. You vowed to do this. And there's that long discussion about the differences between relative vows and her relative will and absolute will. Constant. Both women were taken away. They were stolen by, forced by men to leave. So they had to go. But even while Constance was taken away, she remained faithful in her will to her original vow. So the reason she's here, she's not in hell, they're not in hell. They're here because they were deficient in their virtue, the virtue of fortitude. Justin, Justinian is here because he was deficient in justice. Charles Mattel is in Venus because he was deficient in temperance. Okay, you know the four virtues. We've gone over them, all right? Virtue, justice, temperance, prudence. And it's interesting, there's no deficiency for, for prudence. This, if, you're, if you're wise, you're wise. Um, now, the important thing to see here, and I just want to read this passage once again before we move on. Just Tur say again, Justinian's. Sorry. His problem, Justinian, whom he met in Mercury. It, he, he was deficient in. There has to be some sense of justice. It doesn't name it, but he says he 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 believed that Christ was only of one nature, so his understanding was flawed. And I think the implication is that that it affected his way of dealing with justice in some way. <coughs> He didn't see the truth of things, and he was the one that wrote the code of justice and law. So, um, um, take a look at page 395. Remember how the how the Paradiso opened. Um, on page 391. The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates all the universe reflecting in one part more and another less. God is not matter. God is spirit. He's not matter. He is present. He permeates everything in creation reflecting in one part more and one part less. So just for example, with respect to the moon spots, Rarity and density could never explain those because those are qualities of matter. When Dante does give the explanation, he gives it in terms of form and matter, the informing properties, something closer to a soul. And he gave that very scientific demonstration of, to show how the people who argued that it was form and matter were wrong. God is everywhere, reflecting in one part more and another less. On page 395, um, in the middle of the page, <clears throat> among all things, however, disparate, there reigns in order, and this gives the form that makes the universe resemble God. It's the form giving properties that make things what they are. Mm. Form does not mean structure, which is what we. This is Aristotelian. Aristotle says, and Thomas follows him, that form is the life-giving principle of a thing. When it, when it engages 
primal matter, and primal matter is almost more of a potency, it's not actual physical matter. When form and matter meet, they become a thing. This thing and not another thing. So it's the form of a thing that determines the being of a thing, what it is. So by form, Dante doesn't mean the structure. He means the informing principle, what makes that thing. It's not matter, because matter can't explain itself. Or let me put it this way. I hope this is a little bit. We've all we all did the Aeneid together. Or most of us are. We've done the Inferno. Remember, I've talked about this this notion of action, the plot, the form. If you if you take a if you t the plot, remember according to Aristotle, the plot is an imitation of an action. This happens. This happens. This happens. This. It's a series of events. The whole of it he calls an action. The plot, this, 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 is an imitation of an action. So by plot, he means the visible external events. Dante and Virgil go into hell, they meet Francisco and Paola, you know, episode after episode after episode. That's the plot. The plot is an imitation of the action. So the plot is the visible presence of those <coughs> events. The action is the invisible spiritual movement that they imitate. Yeah? yeah. So every work of art the, the, has a form, but that form is invisible. It's the action, it's the inward action, it's its, it's, its inner movement. The only way we can understand that is by looking at the episodes. Um, how can I make this clear? If you look at a statue, a bronze statue, you can see the form, the external thing, yeah? But what brought that into being? What gave it that shape? There's, there's something that was present in spirit to shape that clay into matter, the physical stuff. So you can't talk about the form apart from the physical stuff. They're inseparable. But the form is a spiritual thing. It's an inward action. It's the life of the flower. We would call it the soul. The definition of the soul, according to St. Thomas, is, um, <clears throat> is, um, is the meeting of form and matter. But it's the form that gives us, that makes us who we are. It's our soul. Can we see the soul? Is it visible to us? No, but you can't separate it from the matter either. They're indistinguishable, they're one with us. But we believe that there's this invisible action, this form that makes us what we are. We call that the soul, the form of a thing, what, what, Im, what imparts, what gives it its form, what makes it, gives it its life. So you're saying the invisible action is the form, and form is the soul. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the form is the soul of man, the rational form. It's what makes man, man. Yeah. The form and plot is what he was talking about. So the invisible action in the plot. So the plot are the, are the individual events that happen. The individual events. And the, and the in sequence. 
and the and the form is what drives the whole thing. The spirit gives it light. behind it gives it gives it. The Does light. it give it intelligibility? Yeah, there is. It's interesting you use that. The only intelligibility that exists is in the form, because matter by itself is unintelligible. It, it's dull. It's. Let me give you another example. If you if you've done the Iliad. Those of you who've done the Iliad, remember it starts with a ransom, it goes to Patroclus' death, and Achilles re-enters the war and goes back into the war, and the, and the book ends. It ends with a reversal of those things that begin it. Now, if you just look at the episodes, you wouldn't see that. Lots of people read the Iliad and never see that. When we talked about it together, I said, look, it begins with a ransom, it's the ransom's refused, and there's a ter terrible quarrel takes place. Achilles withdraws. The Greeks start doing bad, he re-enters the war. When Patroclus dies, he feels bad about what happened. He's a changed man. So that's the plot. At the end of the novel, at the end of the epic, after he returns, Priam comes with a ransom for his Hector's body, and it's received, and the two men end in peace. So everything that starts at the beginning is reversed. Now, how do, you, how do you describe that if your focus is only on individual episodes that don't connect? You can't. There's an action taking place, and that action involves a change, fundamental change, in Achilles, and through him, other men. That was the burden of our work together, that action. But we only know it by looking at the plot, the events. It all has to do with this interchange in Achilles and, and the, the, the effect of it, the reversal that takes place. Because He reverses everything that happens. We'll see that in every one of the Shakespeare plays, too. So, um, the source of intelligibility in all things, whether it's a pear, a leaf, a porpoise, a monkey, a sunflower, a human being, is its form because it's only by that that we can distinguish that thing from another. If there's no form, what we've got is chaos, just a scramble of things. There's no order, there's no form. That's what chaos means. Chaos means formlessness. Among all things, however disperse, there reigns an order, and this gives the form that makes the universe resemble <coughs> God. She said, there in God's higher creatures see the imprint of eternal excellence that go for which the system is created. And in this order, all created things, according to their bent, maintain their place, disposed in proper distance from their source. Therefore, they move all to a different port across the vast ocean of being, and each endowed with its own instinct as its guide. This is what carries fire forward towards the moon. This is the moving force in mortal hearts. This is what binds the earth and makes it one. Everything in creation has an order because of the God who put it there. Now this couldn't be more foreign to our modern view of things. <clears throat> but this is what Stanley's saying. Otherwise, how do we explain it all? How in the world to explain that kind of complexity? Not only living creatures void of reason prove the impelling strength of instinct's bow, but also those with intellect and love. Remember I gave you that sheet. Everything in nature has an appetite. Everything, a flower, a porpoise. Only man has an appetite that's guided by his own apprehensive power, by his own intellect. That's what gives man free will. God, that's what makes us like God. Free will itself implies a reason. What good is it to have free will if we don't have a reason to make 
choices, to deliberate on possibilities, yeah? Everything else in, in creation has an appetite also. A sunflower has an appetite. Remember I said early on, according to Dante, Thomas, all things in the universe are moved by love. Everything has an appetite. The sunflower for the sun, a wolf for a food. Every creature in the world has an appetite. It moves towards its own good. Everything. The difference between all these other things and man is that the apprehensive power um, rests not in them, but in the Creator who made them. In us, God made us so that that apprehensive power exists in us. That is reason. So, all things in creation have appetite, but the apprehensive power exists not in them, but in the Creator who made them. So, everywhere in creation we find in flowers, a porpoise, an animal, trees, whatever it is, an order and a purpose reflecting the apprehensive power of the God who made them. So all things in creation are ordered. They've been given form. An apprehensive power is present, either in them, as in the case of men, or reflected in them, as in the case of all other things. So behind all things in nature is God. And as Dante describes it here, he says, God is here in the Imperium, right? Here's the prima mobile. Prima mobile, the first mover. God imparts his power to the first mover. It travels so fast you can't even see it. It imparts its power to the stars and from the stars and their great diversity to all the other heavens. So there's nothing in the universe that doesn't show God's presence at work doing something. If you think about it, how else could it be? If he's the, the, the fall of a sparrow, the hair on our heads. Now here's the, here's the thing that Dante's doing that's so important to see. Dante makes a distinction between the St. Thomas and Aristotle and every good thinker would have made. He makes a distinction between the first cause and secondary causes. The first cause is God. We live in a world of secondary causes what we call contingencies. There's a degree of freedom in our world. We can choose, we can move, we have choices to make. What Dante's doing that nobody else has done is he looks at secondary causes, the moon spots, the broken vows, the way in which people use their, or misuse their heritage, and he explains them in terms of first causes. He couldn't do that if he didn't have a grasp of metaphysics. He read Aristotle's physics, which explains all of this. He also read his metaphysics. To go from this world to metaphysics is, is to go to the ultimate causes of things. Here's, here's one example of a metaphysics question. How did something come into being that did not exist before? Right? You, I hope you all, I mean, that's a, one of those fundamental... How, how did something come into existence, and how did it come into existence and grow and decline and pass out of existence? How could something come into being when it didn't already have an existence? So in, in Aristotle's metaphysics, he deals with questions like that. 
Dante's attempting to bring explanations, ultimate explanations, to all these things that are going on. Interesting, we had an interesting um, moment of discussion on um, Monday night. Bob Pecky, Bob and Marcy, those of you who are in the group who met Bob, and Bob said, because I, I did the same thing, I tried to explain this principle, that at every point Beatrice is bringing a knowledge of things that Virgil lacked because he's now entered a, a realm of the supernatural in, um, and a, a world that has to be understood in terms of metaphysics, beyond physics. And Bob said he had a wonderful example of an illustration of um, self-perpetuating energy. And he gave the example of a waterfall and he said, I think it's one of the most perfect examples of self-perpetuating energy that I've ever seen because he said that the water never stops running, it keeps going. And it, he must have been using that as an argument for somebody. And I said to Bob, but it's not. Because what you're describing is something defined purely in terms of secondary causes. They're all physical causes. He didn't, he didn't include the snow, the runoff from the snow, and he didn't include gravity. I said, take the snow away and take gravity away. What happens? A world of secondary causes cannot explain itself. A world of material causes cannot explain because matter can't explain itself. In the modern world, what do they do? A black hole. Is there anything more mythic than a black hole? I mean, people laugh at the ancient myths. They laugh at what you know Homer did with the gods and Greeks. As an I think they're profound. What the ancient Greeks did with their you know their, we talked about that when we went through it. It's sort of amazing. Remember. Everything that happens in the world, the sublunary world, is a world of change and death. You can't understand it because everything's constantly changing. Right? <coughs> right? Sublunary world, everything's subject to decay and death. Homer explained it. He, he showed that there are some things we can understand about human nature, this dignity of the human soul, that there's something immortal, that the gods are involved in it. So did Virgil. So the Greeks, in their pantheon, were using their imagination to, tr to try to account for things in an unscientific way, and I think they did an amazing job. Um, so I suggested to Bob that, you know, that's a really good example of something that appears to be self-perpetuating, but it's not. To, to explain motion in terms of secondary causes, we have to go to something else. Aristotle's explanation was that St. Thomas's was one of the definitions of nature is motion, movement. It's one of the defining elements of nature. It's motion, it's movement. If you explain movement in terms of cause and effects, um, you get into an infinite regress, which means there will be no explanation unless you get to a first cause. Aristotle called that the first mover. That mover was movement itself. That and if you if you're understanding, you can see he's very close to the notion of being, <coughs> being itself, God. <coughs> that is something who wasn't who wasn't caused itself, who is self self moving, self being. So if we're going to explain all motion, you have to get to a point of a first mover, something that set everything else in, or or we we have no power for explaining anything. So this is this is. Um, this is where we were. Now, what we encountered in the next, in the next um, 
several planets are the natural virtues perfected. So in the sun we get um, we get wisdom, and um, in Jupiter we get perfect justice. In Saturn we get perfect temperance. Um, and then Dante will go up to the heaven of the stars, and um, I think we'll be there next week. But I wanted to just cover a couple of things here to, to look at some things with you. Turn to uh, <coughs> page 440. By the way, did, did any of you have any questions about that, um, that scheme that, that Dante set out in, in Canto 7, where he said that um, he, he described God's providence and the reason why God did what he did after the fall, that man fell, remember, and God could have left him damned or wiped away his sin. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. Do you have, are you, is everybody okay on that? It, to, it, to me, it's one of the most important cantos in the whole of the Commedia. It's on page 429. That's the beginning of it, um, where they talk about how a, a just punishment could be justly punished, remember? Are we all together here? <laughs> Now listen to my reasoning, in the middle of 429, listen to my reasoning, once joined with its first cause, this nature was, as it had been when first created, pure and good. God made Adam good. There was nothing bad with his nature. But by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth and the true life out of God's holy garden, it was chaste. He sinned, corrupting our nature. Then if the crucifixion can be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. Adam fell, our nature was corrupted, God assumed our nature. If we look at the nature assumed, no act was more just, right? We have to see the crucifixion as a just act, or it's, or it's pointless. Christ came to answer the law, justice. So if we look at the nature assumed, no act was more just, no penalty could bite with greater justice. Just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who endured it, with whom the other nature was combined. If you look at the person punished, no act was more unjust because there was no sin in Christ, right? So we live with a paradox at the center of our faith. Yeah? Thus one event produced different effects. God and the Jews both pleased by this one death for which earth shook and heaven opened wide. Now it should be not be difficult for you to understand the concept of a just vengeance being avenged. Remember, this is about Dante asking why Titus destroyed, why his destruction of Jerusalem um, could be looked at as avenging an early wrong. Christ, cruci Christ was crucified, and, and, um, so that that early wrong was um, punished. Um, but if the first one, if Christ's crucifixion was just, then how could the Jews have been punished when Titus destroyed Jerusalem? He's just answered. Because if you look at the nature Christ assumed, no act was more unjust. If you look at the person who assumed it, no act was more just. It, and um, it, 
he says, thus the event produced different effects. God and the Jews was pleased. The Jews were pleased, but for the wrong reasons. God was pleased because of the goodness of what his son had done. 431, he sets out the whole reason for God doing what he did. Um, I went over this. Is everybody clear on that? Okay, okay. Then, on, on page 440, Dante is still, he, he's met with Charles Martel on Canto 8, and um, it's here on page 439. Should natural disposition find itself not in accord with fortune, then a man fail as a seed and alien soil must die. If men and earth were to pay greater heed to the foundation nature has laid down and build on that, they would build better men. But those men bent to wear the sword you twist into priesthood. You make soldiers into priests, mistakenly. And you make kings out of a man whose calling was to preach. You find yourselves on roads not meant for you. Too often, parents press their kids to do things that are not in accord with their own nature. You know, each, each child has its own proclivity, its own temperament. So once again, I mean, if you go back to that first cause and secondary cause, when human beings are acting in accord with their own nature, they're always acting in accord with God's will. It's when we twist those things or try to, to ignore them, to not take care of nature, that we get ourselves into trouble. On page 441, we encounter this woman, this woman that I mentioned months ago. It, it caused a real stir in the evening class when I said there was this example. I think we were talking about Francesco and Luss, and I mentioned this woman that we would meet in paradise who had four husbands and six lovers, and two of the women looked at each other as if to say, why are we married? <laughs> that, was a, that was a wonderful wow. moment. <laughs> um, here she is, 441. Um, Dante's still in the level of Venus. Remember, Venus is the planet that stirs the, the erotic in man. This is going to play a major role in the Paradiso, Eros, the erotic. Here, he, he meets um, Cuniza in 441, and who describes her and her brother. She says, there isn't that part of Italy which lies between Rialto shore and where the um, Pieve and Brenta River Spring rises a hill of no great height from which some years ago there plunged a flaming torch who laid waste all the countryside around. That's her brother, a passionate man and a, and a bad man. Both he and I were born from the same root. Cuniza was my name and I shine here for I, I was overcome by this star's light, by Venus, the erotic arrows. But gladly I forgive myself in me what caused my fate, it grieves me not at all, which might seem strange indeed to earthly mind. Um, I myself forgive in me what caused my fate. There is nothing in paradise that carries any guilt or shame of sins. Remember, they have been washed away. Um, now turn over to 443. This is just one of the sorts of things that I was talking about earlier. Another soul appears to Dante wrapped in its own brilliance. Dante has a question at the top of 443. God can see all and your sight sees in him, I said, O Holy Spirit, so no thought of mine can hide itself from your true sight. 
Your voice then, which eternally charms heaven in harmony with those adoring flames that make themselves a cow of their six wings, why does it leave my longing unfulfilled? I would not wait for you to ask of me were I to in you as you now in me. Now hold on to that. At the top of, go back to the top. God can see all and your sight, the, the Italian is not sees in him. The Italian is, and your sight in hymns itself. Hold on to that. Your sight in hymns itself. That's the Italian. Turn to page 410. The top of the page. I, I mentioned this before. Not the most godlike of the seraphim. Not Moses, Samuel, Mary. Um, the, the line in Italian is not the most ingodded. Not the most ingodded of the seraphim. Here on 443, God can see all and your sights in hymns itself. And Fulquet says, why does it leave my longing unfulfilled? I would not wait for you to ask of me were I to in you and you now in me. What's going on in all of these? I'm going to put a list of these on a sheet of paper and give them to you sometime. But what's going on is as you, as you approach God and God, all of the, I don't know, if, for those of you who've been mass the last week, all of the readings about and I in you, Father, and you in me, and, and we in them, and them in us. What he's saying is, um, um, I, I, have, I have given them to you. I have revealed you to them. I carry you in me. They know you through me, right? The, um, for the Jews who wouldn't admit it, he said, you see the Father in me. You didn't know him before, you know him now. What he's doing is reminding us of the nature of the Trinity, that the, the nature of the Trinity is, the, the, uh, uh, the Latin word is perichoresis, perichoresis, indwelling. They are one with each other. The Father conceives of himself, and that conception of himself is the Son. It's a person, not a thing, because God himself is a person. He's being itself. The love between the two is a person, not a thing. They are indwelling one with another, and, and the, the whole purpose of the church is to ask us to love that way. So when we talk about a husband and wife becoming one, that's not a figurative statement. It's meant to be literally that we're meant to become one. So all the way up through the Paradisa now, we're going to be constantly hearing these. Beatrice is already reading his mind before he knows it. Before he knows it. How? She brings the light of the Father, she can see. So what's interesting, what's going on right now is that all of the souls are beginning to in, interpenetrate, to in-being with each other while they're remaining distinct. And that's absolutely crucial to hear. The Buddhists believe we all mesh together to become one because they believe that our individualism is at the center of our problems, that it's a flaw. Christianity believes that God made each of us in his image distinct because variety was one of the ways of showing perfection. Here in the heaven, as we move up, this thing about time and space categories is falling away. They are <coughs> in being, in othering themselves. God can see all and your sight in hymns itself a light from God is interpenetrating you and you're able to bring that light to others. Remember, remember 
Guido at the level of um, envy. He said, the problem with you people is that you put your mind on material things. So the more there are, the less you have. And then you get angry and greedy because you're going to lose some. You won't get what you want. The problem is you don't put your mind on spiritual things because there, the more love there is, the more love multiplies. So here, as, as, as um, this, ac- this action of interpenetration, of indwelling takes place, light and love begins to expand. They participate more, love grows. Remember that, that line that I read you when Beatrice was looking at the griffin and Dante looked at her, and as he looked in her eyes it said, and it satisfied my longing and set it on for more. That the very nature of paradise as is that our loves will increase and be satisfied and continue to increase. So what we're getting in all these scenes are these descriptions of light increasing, becoming quicker, more interpenetrating, um, more intimate (coughs) one with another. So when we think about heaven, we just can't think about it in terms of our sluggish bodies here. (laughs) We've got to think of it in terms of instantaneous growth and interaction and interpenetration. Why does it leave my longing unfulfilled? I would not wait for you to ask of me were I to in you and you to in me. As they more in each other, as they go along, love is going to grow and multiply. It's like the fishes. It's just getting wild. Um, In the next two, next several, I'm going to wind this up here. In the next several cantos, these stars begin to dance around Dante and form a circle and out of the center of them St. Thomas begins to speak on 450 I was one of the sacred flock of lambs led by St. Dominic along the road where all may fatten if they do not stray hold on to that line he introduces himself down below on 450 still the fifth light, the most beautiful of all, breathes from a love so passionate that men still hunger down on earth to know his faith. His flame contains that lofty mind instilled with wisdom so profound, if truth speak truth, there never arose a second with such vision. This is the wisest man of all. Dante will come out of this with two questions. Um, why, remember that line, led by St. Dominic along the road where all may fatten if they do not stray. Dante wants to know what he means there and he wants to know <coughs> who this fifth person is um, who's wiser than anybody else. St. Saint, Saint Thomas introduces all these men and then he tells this story of this great lover on page 455. And notice that he tells this, this story in erotic terms. Highly erotic. Um... The providence, in the middle of 454, the providence that governs all the world with wisdom so profound, none of his creatures can ever hope to see into its depths, in order that the bride of that sweet groom, whose crying loud espoused her with his blood, might go to her beloved, made more secure. Everything that he describes now will be in terms of love. In the middle of page 455, <clears throat> only a few years after he had risen did this invigorating power begin to penetrate the earth with a new strength. This this person who was born. 
While still a youth, he, he braved his father's wrath because he loved a lady to whom all would bar their door as if death itself. Most people would want to throw this lady away. Before the bishop's court in Coram Patre, in his father's presence, he took this lady as his lawful wife. From day to day, he loved her more and more. Bereft of her first spouse, despised, ignored, she waited 1,100 years and more living without a lover till he came. You all know who this is. This is St. Francis. And the love, the beloved is poverty. Notice how he eroticizes this whole story. This man grew up and, and loved this woman. And the interesting thing here, bereft of its spouse, that is Christ, of his bride, bereft of her, despised, ignored, and she waited 1,100 years. The church, this is amazing. This is Dante's critique of the church again. The church was without its proper lover for 1,100 years. You remember, I gave you those handouts dealing with church and state. What Dante's saying is that the church was so embroiled in these things, she'd become so greedy, so avaricious, that she lost her beloved, Christ and his commitment to poverty. What is St. Francis doing right now? What was one of the first things we did when he became, named St. Francis? He did, I mean, Pope, sorry, Pope Francis. He did everything he could to turn the church in the direction of poverty. Giving, giving, putting things away to help recover that, that early commitment to poverty, chastity. So this is indirectly a, a serious critique of the church for a heaven, for 1100 years, having made itself too worldly. But notice how, and then he describes <coughs> what happens with St. Francis on page 457. He goes to the, um, to the Islamic countries to try to convert. There in the haughty presence of the Sultan, urged by a burning thirst for martyrdom, he preached Christ and his blessed father, but finding no one ripe for harvest there, they were too resistant. They didn't want to hear the word of God. He returns to Italy and Europe, and then on bare rock between Arno and Tiber, he took upon himself Christ's holy wounds, and for two years he wore this final seal. He had the stigmata for a couple of years at the end of his life. Now, look at this. He's been talking about St. Francis as this lover, in very erotic terms, loving this lady. On page 458, but his own flock is growing greedy now. This is... Um, he's, Dominic is talking about um, Dominic, I mean, sorry, St. Thomas is talking about Dominic at the bottom of page 457. He's returned to his own congregation, talking about Dominic, and then says, but his own flock has grown greedy now for rich food, and in their hungry search they stray to alien pastures carelessly. Remember that, that first line that I told you, remember, of, of um, where all may fatten if they do not stray. Thomas is saying that all, all priests will, will do all right if they just keep to their path. But what he's making clear now is that they've gotten fat and rich because they've gotten greedy. They stray to alien pastures carelessly. The farther off his sheep go wandering from him in all directions, the less milk they bring back when they come back to the fold. True, there are some who, fearing loss, will keep close to their shepherd, but so few are those who would not take much cloth to make their cows. This so, is a critique of the Dominicans? Yep. Okay. So now he's, wow. now he's answered one of the, one of the problems by, by praising St. Francis 
and, and criticizing the, the decline of the Dominican order when it was one of the reform orders of the church. Huh? And St. Thomas was a Dominican. Yes. Yeah. Oh, when did the Dominicans start? God, well, um, Albert had to be before Thomas, so it had to be somewhere around 11th century, somewhere in 11th, 12th century, for both of them, 11th, 12th century, for both um, Dominic and Francis. Now, now another circle arrives and circles around the first one. This is the Franciscans on page 460. Bonaventure comes forward to introduce all of his, the, 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 the souls that make up his circle. And then he describes this, the birth of Dominic as this fire bursting into the world at the bottom of 462 but just the right to fight the sinful world, that true seed when sprang the four and twenty plants surrounding you. Then armed with doctrine and a zealous will, with apostolic sanction, he burst forth a mighty torrent gushing. He was a warrior. Go down a few stanzas. If such was one wheel of the chariot that holy church used to defend herself and conquer on the field of civil strife, you cannot fail to see how excellent the other must have been about whom Thomas, before I came, spoke with such courtesy. So those two men, Francis and Dominic, were the great reformers to right the chariot, the church, to keep its balance moving through the world. Um, let, me to, let me just stop one thing, and then we'll stop. Dante wants to know what Thomas meant when he said, who is this fifth person who is the wisest man and on page 467, Thomas will step forward. And I want to put this into context before we finish here. In the middle of the Paradiso, you've got two orders. You've got the Dominicans coming forth and dancing as lights around Dante and Beatrice, and then the Franciscans coming with a larger order of lights and dancing around them, both of them exchanging praise. So we see at the heart of heaven, in, in the form of all these lights, not with bodies as we know them, lights flashing, dancing, glowing. They're all, they're all described in terms of jewels. There's this brilliant effulgence to everything. We see an example of the nature of, of people in heaven, that everybody is perfectly courteous. They're not boasting of themselves. They're speaking of the good of others. So they're not talking about their accomplishments. If they talk about themselves at all, it's to condemn the corruptions. Courtesy is, the, is looking to the good of others. So we see the two orders exchanging these courtesies here. Dante asks his second question, and St. Thomas steps forward and says on page 467, God made Adam directly. And Christ entered our human nature directly. So if you leave those two men out, because one was created by, directly by God and, and the other, God directly entered our human nature, of all other men, there was only one man that can, can be said, can be described as the wisest man of all, and that man was, si was Solomon, 468, the fifth light. So you must have been surprised to hear what I said earlier of our fifth light, as he possessed a wisdom without equal. Um, and by the way, I have to say here, I can't remember if I said this to you before, Milton hated Solomon. 
In Paradise Lost, if you read Paradise Lost, Milton has nothing good to say about Solomon because Solomon had a thousand wives. Think Uniza had it good. <laughs> With four husbands and six lovers or whatever she had, Solomon had a thousand wives. Milton hated Solomon because of, I think there was something too platonic, too, that, that, that aspect of the Protestant world is too platonic, that doesn't like the body. Dante loves the body. Here at the center of the Paradiso, in the most incorporeal as part of the, of the Divine Comedy, he is celebrating the body. He just did it with Cuniza. She had four husbands, two lovers. There's that, and oh, I, sorry, I forgot to go back. Sorry, God, I meant to read this. Go back before we. When, he fini when Thomas finishes the description of, of um, <coughs> Francis, the, the canto ends this way. Sorry, I forgot to. 452. He's just described the, all of the lights in the circle, and it ends this way. The light from which your eyes return to me shines from a soul once given to grave thoughts, who mourn that death should be so slow to come. This is the endless radiance of Sigur, who lecture in the street of straw, exposing invidious logical belief. By the way, all of the men making up the Dominican or the circle around St. Thomas are not all Dominicans, and some of them were Thomas's enemies. One of them is a Islam. So this is not just pro-Christian. St. Thomas and Dante are acknowledging men who use their intellects to fight error whatever their belief. Then as the tower, now this is why I wanted to read, then as the tower clock calls us to come at the hour when God's bride, remember this is just after the story of Francis, this sort of erotically presented, then as the tower clock calls us to, to come at the hour when God's bride is roused from bed to woo with matin song her bridegroom's love with one part pulling, thrusting in the other, chiming, ting-ting, music so sweet the soul ready for love swells with anticipation. So I was witness to that glorious wheel moving and playing voice on voice in Concord with sweetness, harmony unknown, save there where joy becomes one with eternity. If that's not an erotic passage, I don't know what it is. Now why would Dante be doing this? You all, I'm assuming you all hear that, the eroticism in it, yes? Mm -hmm. The swelling, the thrusting, the, you know. The, um, why would Dante do that? It's so explain and, and and to have presented the Francis story in erotic terms, and then he goes to Solomon. Go back to where we were now. We're um, four sixty-eight. Four sixty-eight. Um, so four sixty-eight. Four. Yeah, 467. Why is he doing this? Let me finish the, the, the Solomon thing and, and then we'll stop on this. He makes God, or I mean he makes Adam directly, God makes him. Now he's describing Solomon, 468. He says, all that which died, and by the way, here again is this first principle, first cause principle that explains all secondary causes. There's no contingency in God's order. None. No contingency. Contingencies are a part of secondary causes. It's one of the qualities of a world in which freedom exists. We have to learn to move around with things. There are no contingencies in God's world. Everything is settled order. Right? 
So we've already seen that. The first mover imparts, God imparts movement to the prima mobile, which imparts motion to all the universe. God is, God is present in everything. So unlike our world, Dante is, is letting us know that as, as Catholics, as Christians, if, if, if we're using our minds at all, we're able, we're able to see, to make a defense that God is present in everything. Not just abstractly and say, oh, God's looking over sentimentally, you know, some kind of cheap... Re this is serious. I mean, metaphysically, he's giving arguments to show it's really true. Here he's repeating that same principle. All that which dies and all which cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through his love begets. What's that idea? The Son, yes? Because the Father's conception of himself, his idea of himself, right, is the Son. He's the idea of the Father which he, his love begets. That living light which from its radiant source streams forth its light but never parts from it, not nor from the love which triunites with them. That's the spirit, the love which triunites with them. Of its own grace sends down its rays as if reflected through the nine consistencies remaining sempiternally itself. The nine order of angels receive their life from God. The nine order of angels are the angels that overlook each one of the planetary spheres. So it's another instance of him giving a metaphysical account of God's presence in the world. Then it descends into the last potencies. From act to act becoming so diminished it brings forth only brief contingencies. And by this term I mean things generated. Things which the moving heavens produce from seed or not from seed. The wax of things like these is more or less receptive. All the things that are intergenerated here, flowers, us, whatever it happens to be. Um, 469, but nature can never transmit this light to its full force, much like the artisan who knows his craft but has a trembling hand. The farther away we get away from the first mover, the more nature enters into the act of generation, the less perfect it becomes. Accidents happen in this world. But if the fervent love moves the clear vision of the first power and makes of that its seal, the thing it stamps is perfect in all ways. And this is how the dust of earth was once made to form the perfect living being and how the virgin came to be with child. Go down. My words were meant to bring back to your mind the fact that he was a king and asked his Lord for wisdom to suffice a worthy king. When you remember in the Bible, God... Solomon, what was Solomon asked for wisdom? Mm -hmm. Right, that was his question. He did not ask to know so that he might count angels or know whether necesse with a condition premise yields necesse. An absolute premise leads to an absolute conclusion. Nor if si e der primum motum esse um, whether there's a first motion, or if without right angles, triangles, and semicircles can be made to fit. That is, he didn't ask for philosophic knowledge, he didn't ask for scientific knowledge, he didn't ask for geometric wisdom. He didn't ask for any of those. What he asked for was practical prudential wisdom in order to serve better as a king. So when I talked of unmatched wisdom then, royal prudence was the wisdom upon which I had my arrow of intention drawn. If you recall the world I, I used, a rose, it should be clear that only kings were meant. Let this be leaden weight upon your feet to make you move slow as a weary man 
both to the yes and no you do not see. For he ranks low indeed among the fools who rushes to affirm or deny, no matter which, without distinguishing. This is a fundamental principle of St. Thomas. All of us get arrogant in speaking as if we've got the answer to things all the time. We talk as if we know. Fundamental principle of St. Thomas is, was you cannot unite things, it's impossible to resolve them, to unite them, unless you distinguish properly. Without distinguishing. Opinions formed in haste will oftentimes lead to a wrong direction in man's pride and intervenes to blind his intellect. The most important thing we can do to begin things is distinguish one thing from another. If we can do that, we can begin to put them together. But where our mind gets lazy and we, and we live in abstractions, blank abstractions, we're not distinguishing. We're letting abstractions do the work of thinking itself. You know, living in the marketplace, you very often become aware that you're not even thinking that the phrases and terms of the marketplace are determining your own thoughts. That's the way people think. That's what we think. Worse than useless is it to leave the shore to fish for truth unless you have the skill. You will return worse off than when you left. Of this, Parmenides offers clear proof in Bryson and Melissus and the rest who went their way but knew not where to go. He mentions some of the um, heretics. Nor should one be too quick to trust his judgment. Be not like him who walks his field and counts the ears of corn before the time is right. Wait, meditate on things, let your mind sit on things, think about them before you act on them. We're supposed to let things mature to not just the fruit that we make, but our own thinking, which is a fruit. We talk about the fruit of our thoughts, our meditations. For I have seen briar all winter long, showing its tough and prickly stem, and then eventually produce a lovely rose. And I've seen a ship sail straight and swift over the sea, through all its course, and then about to enter in the harbor, sink. Because we rest, we, we go through all of this and still do stupid things at the end because we don't have the patience to just continue to think calmly, make, make distinctions. No Mr. or Miss Know-it-all should think when they see one man steal and one man give alms that they are seeing them through God's own eyes. For one may yet rise up. Be careful of the judgments we make against other people because some grace may enter and that person may fool us. Last principle on 473, Dante wants to know when we get a body um, at, the, at the resurrection, given the brilliance of the light, because we've seen that with, with each rise to a higher level, the brilliance increases. If we get a body, how can the body sustain such an intense light? Um, and I'm gonna wait on, I'm gonna wait on this until, uh, Next Friday, but on 473, it's one of the once again one of the more principles of the Paradiso. He will say that our that our vision is it, um, our our brilliance. Well, here, then from the brightest of the lights, I heard come the linear round a modest tone, as was the angel's voice that Mary heard. Long as the joyous feast of paradise shall last, it said, so long our burning love shall clothe us in this radiance you see. Our brilliance is in ratio to our love our ardor to our vision, and our vision to the degree of grace vouchsafed to us. 
when our flesh, sanctified and glorious, shall clothe our souls once more, our person then will be more pleasing since it's complete, wherefore the light generously bestowed on us by the supreme good is increased, the light of glory that shows him to us. It follows then that vision must increase as must the ardor kindled by that vision, as must the radiance the ardor gives. As a coal burns white in its own fire, whose inner glow outshines its outer flame, so that its form is clearly visible, so this effulgence that contains us now will be surpassed in brilliance by the flesh. Once again, we, we are given this image that when we get our bodies, there will be a greater radiance, um, an increase in our vision that comes from an increase in love because we're seeing more goodness all around. So there's this constant interplay between seeing more and loving more, the higher we go. And as we've seen already, that's going to be an ongoing, it's not static, it's an ongoing <coughs> condition in heaven. If God is infinite, it's not going to stop. So what Dante's doing, is, I think, is teaching us to get out of, when we think about the things of our faith, he's helping us to get out of those categories that bound us. Sometimes when I talk with Protestants, I, you know, when they, I get this impression, I've never talked at length, but when they talk about going to heaven, I sometimes picture it as a sort of earthly uh, vacation spot where, where the senses are pleasured and you know, we can go swimming and lie on the beach and everybody will be happy. And it's so much in terms of the, the world as we know it and the bodies as we know them now. What Dante's showing us is that it's like closer to the transfiguration that occurred on the mount with Christ. What's going on in paradise is, Paul said, I have not seen, or have not heard. What Dante's doing is giving us a visual image of those things. That heaven is so far surpassing what we can think of it in our imaginations. We, our time-space boundaries are being expanded everywhere in the Paradiso. Has anybody ever touched upon this before Dante? I mean, this is a, such a vision. The closest, this is really, it's really, it's a good question, Don. This is what's amazing to me. The, the only person that I know who's touched on it is Plato. If you think about it, you'd see why. In the, in the work Phaedrus, Plato, Socrates describes the man going, this man, the, the, you know the cave? Yes. The, the, the Socrates, the, the wise man who, who, who knows he doesn't know and wants to keep learning, so he asks questions and ends up going outside the cave. He's the only one who does because all the other people think they've got the answers to things. It's that thing, except now instead of the cave, it's the universe, which is the cave image, because if you come out of the cave, you're in eternal things. He gives the image of the universe and says, <coughs> no poet, no poet, has ever gone to the back of the universe and revealed those things. And that's where it was left. You got Scipio's dream in, um, who's the, the, who's Scipio's dream? It's, um, the great pagan Cicero. Cicero's dream, you got Paul talking about the third heaven, but nobody has ever showed it like this. This is, there are minor works that, you know, visions and things like that, but nothing. And nothing that's, that, that's as rationally founded. Because this isn't done just in a while. Remember the contrapassos at every level that everything he's doing is showing the effects of our human nature as it is. At every stage. He's like a doctor. These are 
this is what's natural to this. And so what happens in the supernatural range, the supernatural realm, is a continuation of what happens here. He is always faithful, true to our nature. So what he's showing us is not just a fanciful, imaginary world. He's, he's finding words to show us what everything reason and faith has helped him to see. Well, I, well I, he's, he's developmental, right? I use that word. In other words, he's walking through this process and he's like climbing the mountain or whatever he's doing so that there is not just some fanciful event that he jumped from nowhere, there's somewhere. And, and, and it, 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 it flows naturally from what's preceded. Yeah, it's very rooted in our nature, and it and it there's this wonderful continuity between our human nature and God's world. It, it, it's so consonant with it. So, what's amazing is how many Catholics don't know about this. It really is. It really is sad. It is sad. I mean, think out what it would do to our. We've been in the cave all this time. You know what troubles me? Think what it would do for Catholic artists if kid. If kids would grow up with this, what kind of art? I mean, we, we, are, we are so impoverished as a faith. I mean, I look at young kids and wish, who, what young kids are going to, because what they're being taught in school right now cannot get them to this, you know? Um, why this isn't a part of our education, sad.